The Start On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Friday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And coming up today, you're going to hear about a brand new show that is debuting on CJOB. Well, it's brand new in the sense that it's new to CJOB, but it's been around for a while in the form of a podcast called Nighttime. Over 5 million downloads for this podcast over the years, so we are very Proud to have it on our radio station and excited to give you a bit of a preview. We're also going to tell you the story of a woman who got paid a visit by Child and Family Services because she let her seven and three-year-old kids walk alone up the block to the local bakery while she was watching. The Couch Potatoes are going to assemble to tell you what's new at the movies this weekend. There are eight new films at the box office We're going to give you the rundown, the full rundown. I don't know that I can remember a weekend where there has ever been eight new films in one weekend. Today is Take Your MLA to Work Day, October 26th. It's part of Disability Employment Awareness Month, so we are excited to learn more about that. We also want to preview the latest edition of the podcast, This Is Why. And this week's episode is This Is Why I Met My Rapist. And finally, we want to tell you about a new show, a special that is going to air on Remembrance Day on History Canada, 100 Days to Victory. We'll speak with a historian from the Canadian War Museum. But hey, this is exciting stuff. we got something new coming to CJOB this weekend, Loren. Yeah, it covers everything from mystery, true crime, secrets of the paranormal, and sometimes just the plain weird. Part of a popular Canadian bo- podcast that is now coming to Chorus Radio. It's called Nighttime and had, had more than 5 million downloads since it first launched in 2016. CJOB is bringing it to you this weekend. And to tell us more is its creator, writer, and host, Jordan Bonaparte. Morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're reaching you in Halifax, is that right? No, I'm actually, uh, you may hear it in my voice, I'm experiencing the magic of Disney World right now. I'm in Orlando, Florida with my uh, with my son will be uh, six tomorrow, so we're here celebrating his sixth birthday. Right so on. Jordan, you're actually on holidays right now, <laughs> and you're joining us uh, at this early hour. Thanks for doing that, and uh, happy birthday yeah, to your this- son. Yes, man. This is my spinoff show. I do the nighttime at night. This is the early morning show. So it's, uh, I'm glad to experience it with you. Have you on my show. Well, tell us about this. What is nighttime all about? Well, really what it is is um, uh, audio documentary series is kind of the way I put it. Because each episode is kind of a standalone piece where generally I explore Canadian mysteries, true crime, strange stories, or just kind of unique events. And kind of the, the format of the show uh, is sort of like a documentary where I'll generally do my own research, then reach out to people involved in the story. So generally, the episodes are put together via um, my own narration based on my research, as well as interviews with uh, either experts in the field or witnesses to the event or people involved in, in the story. So I try to, whenever possible, have people actually involved in the, in the story sharing their stories with the with the listeners because I, I guess that's kind of that's kind of what it is. I I kind of see it as if you remember the old show on Solve Mysteries. It's kind of like uh, 
maybe the Canadian uh, from my basement version of that. <laughs> this is a real emerging area, I think. There's a lot of people looking for sort of that true crime or, or even just the mystery sense uh, on Netflix or in podcasts. What, what do you think the, is driving that appetite for this type, for this genre? Oh, geez. Uh, it's, it is all over the place right now. It's a very, a very popular emerging genre, like you said. Uh, although the genre has been around forever, I'm just really it's seen a boom recently. And I think a lot of it just has to do with uh, a few really successful uh, series coming out. Like there was the podcast called Serial, which really changed kind of the podcast landscape and really opened up the door for true crime series to come through. And on TV, like you mentioned, Netflix, we had Making a Murderer, which is a really popular series as well, which it just kind of shifted the focus towards true crime uh, for, for a lot of people. But I think the reason people enjoy it is, is for one, it's, it's such, although it's, it's their true stories and they're, they're dark and concerning in a lot of cases, it, it kind of gives people a, a, an escape from, from their lives and their problems. When you think of, you know, the, the bad day you've had at work or the, your kid was up all night while you're in Disney world and he made you crazy um, on your first night of your vacation that pales in comparison to you know what people out there are going through in their in their real in their in their lives and you know the victims of of these crimes the family members they leave behind the systematic failures that lead to them all those things kind of make your own problems seem so so minor and i think uh, at least for me i think that's what that plays a part in the the attraction so Jordan, I think uh, I host my own podcast with uh, Blue Bomber, great former Blue Bomber, great Doug Brown, and and I know that what makes it appealing to me is how much I love, first of all, football, and then the Blue Bombers, and then you know the passion that the fans feel around that part of our community. It brings something different to the podcast. You must be big time into this. How, how did you get into wanting to tell these stories? Yeah, it's, I, I don't even really know how I got into it. I've always kind of just, I guess I've just been born into it. Ever since I was a kid, I was really into collecting books about local folklore and ghost stories and mysteries and crime. And I've always just kind of been, I guess, uh, without even meaning to, just a kind of a collector of these stories. Um, it probably doesn't hurt that my family's kind of the same way. Like my, my dad is, is, is the type that no matter where he goes or what he does, he comes home with like a really strange story of what happened to him. My grandfather is well known for um, having experienced a UFO sighting in 1984 in my home island of Cape Breton Island. And that, in fact, my first two episodes were a documentary covering, uh, helping my 90 plus year old grandfather and grandmother investigate their UFO sighting. So I just kind of, I've always just been surrounded by it. I I don't know what made me this way. Um, I, do you know when I was a kid, I remember for a brief period of time, my mother uh, had me uh, meeting with a psychologist to see why I was drawing so many strange pictures and so obsessed with horror movies. I think that was when I was five or six, but turned out I was okay and I haven't grown out of it. So I guess I've just always been this way. Now Canada, seen as a wholesome place, a friendly place. Do you ever get stuck for stuff to talk about? Oh my goodness, no! It's that's the perception of Canada, but it's far from the truth. I, th- I think it may some of it may have to do with just the responsibility of our of our media. We don't uh, don't sensationalize a lot of the major events and crimes that that have happened. Unlike you know, just say for example, the United States often will you know 
basically like the OJ trial was basically a TV show. And same with Casey Anthony, who was uh, charged with killing her young daughter. That was basically like an ongoing TV series that aired on every channel. It seems in Canada we're less less likely to less open to doing that. Our media here, I think that plays a part in it. But we, um, despite our, uh, we have we have less uh, you know gun related crimes and these sorts of things. But we have a lot of terrible things that happen. I have a list uh, a mile long of missing people, unsolved murders, you know, uh, just a terrible, deprived, depraved things. And I wish I would run out and there could just be peace in the world and I could just talk about people maybe seeing UFOs all the time. But I think that day's uh, far away. So we're debuting the show Sunday night. The podcast has been around for a while, but it'll air on Sunday night on CJOB for the first time. What can listeners expect from that first episode? Yeah, uh, a really cool one. It's the story of a Halifax man named Bernie Langell. He's a, uh, he's, um, like a 30-ish year old guy and basically Bernie was uh went on Twitter one day and started writing about uh, he was sharing the story of his grandfather's uh mysterious um unexplained death we'll call it uh his grandfather died his grandfather of the same name Corporal Bernie Langell died on a military base in New Brunswick under really suspicious circumstances um the I won't give all the details of it but basically I, I helped Bernie try to uncover the truth behind his grandfather's death by doing a lot of uh, research, uh, chasing down a lot of leads that that he had. But basically, his grandfather's death included a possible fall down the stairs, uh, a possible government cover-up related to the Agent Orange um, biological weapon that was being stored on the military base he worked at. It includes a doctor who was uh, lost his license because a nurse walked in on him uh, punching his grandfather, who had serious injuries, saying, if you don't die tonight, I'm going to kill you myself. It involves a train hitting an ambulance. It's just a story that seems too strange to be true, but turned out it all is true. And basically, the first episode is Bernie and I trying to figure out exactly what happened, because it's kind of the story over the last 40 or 50 years, and his family kind of took on a life of its own, and so kind of, there was inaccuracies kind of due to the nature of storytelling for, throughout a family, but uh, we set out to basically find out exactly what happened. And over the course of a two-episode series, the first one will air on, on global affiliated stations this weekend. We, we have a pretty good uh, idea that we figured out exactly what happened. Well, Jordan, so uh, Jordan, it's all fascinating stuff, and we're happy to have you aboard on our radio station and across uh, Chorus Radio. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on vacation. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Now I'm going to go get to some rides. I hear the Haunted Mansion's actually haunted. I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Go get those fast passes, Jordan. It helps out a little bit. Mackley, McGarry, and McNabb on 680 CJOB, along with Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, and Kyle Milroy. And before we talk about what we are going to talk about here, Loren McNabb, go. Yeah, we've just got some two fires that were developing overnight in Winnipeg. One at 2 a.m. in Point Douglas actually sent two people to hospital. It was a house fire there. Uh, one sent in critical condition and the other in unstable condition. So we'll continue to monitor that. Monitor that. And another person taken to hospital after a fire on Maryland, Maryland Street last night around 7. So crews are still on scene uh, in both those cases and three people all together in hospital for two separate house fires. So I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I rode my bike everywhere. I walked around everywhere unsupervised. 
it was just the thing you did. I know times have changed. McNabb, uh, you've got two young ones. Do you let them run around unsupervised? Well, we're on a cul-de-sac, and so the rule is they're allowed to go alone, like in that circle, so to speak, and so they'll do that. Um, I'm try- I've am i been trying to think this morning because we're talking about this because of a woman uh, in the free press this morning saying that she was contacted by CFS after somebody reported her for letting her seven and three-year-old walk down the block. I believe she could see them the entire time, and it was a two-minute excursion uh, to a store and back. And then some CFS came and said, you're not allowed to do that. The kids have to be 12, I think, is the age they gave. In Manitoba, there's the legal age to let your kids go anywhere alone. So I don't know. I don't have a store nearby that I would let my kids go or come from, but 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 it's but it's, if it was a block away and I could see them, I, the the cul the cul de sac is a block, you know, like a block distance, so to speak, from me from me to them, and I've let them go that distance. I have one word: school. Most of us walk to school at five, six, seven years old. A lot further than that. And Kelly Moore, I don't know. I know you grew up in the country, and, 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 and <laughs> I read and this story, and I was thinking, holy crows, I would have spent my entire year. Uh, my entire childhood uh, in CFS care because, well, it just... No, I'm not laughing. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's just, it's different, right? But, so... And, and this is the God's truth. We, on a Sunday morning, my uh, dad would send us out on this remote highway uh, between Hope and Princeton in the BC interior, and we'd collect beer bottles that were thrown to the side of the road all day. We'd get we we'd start our journey at about seven o'clock in the morning. My dad had come along in his Volkswagen van, and grab all the bottles as he went along, and then uh, he'd pick us up about six o'clock at night. And how old? Sorry, how old were you? Do you think uh, we would have been between the ages of about probably seven and twelve? Yeah, I got uh, like so again. So this was in Wolseley. It's a mom who spoke to the Free Press, a seven and three year old. They walked to the bakery. It was within one block, and she saw it as a safe distance. She watched them the entire time. So I don't, I don't, I don't. I, is, is, it the, is it the three-year-old? Absolutely ludicrous. Whoever blew the whistle on her, mind your own bloody yeah. business. You've got Please. way too much time on yeah. your hands. Three's here. pretty young, but they are walking with a seven-year-old, and I don't know. I think they're it, being watched by their mom. But what yeah, if yeah, it's called on. a parent? But what if it's? I'm thinking about the traffic running out into the street. They didn't. Well, they didn't have to cross the road or anything. No, no, yeah. I know. I'm, I'm trying to think of the possible reasons why a provincial organization would weigh in on this. And then actually it sounds probably like... You're blew, trying to put reason into this. Well, That's your first mistake. They probably blew their leaves onto their yard or something like that. Oh, and was it was that just revenge. neighborhood dispute. So the legal age in Manitoba is 12 for you leaving your kid alone, which also, depending on your family, like some kids are just super responsible by age six or seven, yeah. and you wouldn't think twice. I mean, not, I don't mean leaving them alone for the night, Hold but on. letting them walk Hold the store on. Let back. me read the act here. Section 17.2G of the Child and Family Services Act states that a child is in need of protection if, being under the age of 12 years, the child is left unattended and without reasonable provision being made for the supervision and safety of the child. I would say it was beyond reasonable, (laughs) the supervision that these children were under. They were not by themselves. They were taking a little stroll up the block. This is this is ridiculous. No, three is young. So three is really young. Just to play devil's advocate. If the 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 kids are two minutes up the block. Yep. If something bad were to happen, yep. mom is two minutes away. If someone were to pull up beside them in a car, come out, grab them. I get it. So I get it, but you can't be everywhere 
all the time. So does that mean you can't let your kids play in the front yard by themselves anymore? And that because you're inside the house, you yeah. have to be like within arm's reach of your children at all points in time. Yeah. I don't buy that. I don't get that. And I don't practice that. When my littlest was three, we, we he certainly would have been far from arm's length, like running around you know, our, our little circle and kicking the ball. And if the ball had gone into the street, I'm not, I'm not close enough to grab him every single yeah. time. Jeff? No, I'm not close enough to grab him either. Well, you should come help <laughs> out. Why are you not there? Hey, Kyle Milroy. Uh, Hi. Did Tom ever come chasing after you when you went too far? No, he still doesn't know I'm not home. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so you were allowed to to wander yeah, around. Yeah, I, I guess thinking we all we all walked to school. I guess that's because everyone knew that there was just like a migration of you know the kids going in one direction every day, so you knew where to kind of look for them. But. Uh, yeah, I think there was the incident recently where somebody was playing, or their kids were playing out back, and someone called child That's right. services That's on right. them. Right, last well. summer, and they were in their yard, though, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, they someone were in called. their yard. God. McGarry and McNabb on 680 CJOB Orchestra this morning. Yeah, it's actually the like, official one, no? Like, that sounds like yeah. the real deal? Yeah, Kyle Milroy bringing his A-game. Normally, uh, when you hear Forte, it's the, the, the clumsy saxophone or the, you know, the, the dumb flute, but uh, no, Kyle just brought in the full... That guitar, that, like, what was that thing that time? I was strings. Like a but, sitar or yes, something? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, which I actually enjoy. <laughs> I think my personal favorite, there was one that has a stylophone, a saxophone. I don't know, it's like, like three or four instruments. And in the it. orchestra of the weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but Kyle brought the WSO with him uh, this morning. So, well done, Kyle. Thank you very much. And it's time to talk about movies with the couch potatoes. Jeff Braun is here. Hey, man. What's up? I like the one where the guy just shrieks the song. Oh, oh, that's really? horrifying. We've never played that one because oh, it's it's far too put intense. Put that on the list, please. No, it's, it's, Come on. It's too weird. What about yeah. for next week when it's Halloween? Kyle, well, it's not so much scary. It's just, it's it's insane. I kind of feel <laughs> like, like the goat one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it, what do you mean? Okay. Well, right. the, the, screaming, it, the screaming goat, which by the way, that screaming goat video, that's not a goat screaming. That's just a guy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you know there what? are screaming goats. Why don't you guys talk movies? I'll just leave for a bit and go go down the rabbit hole. You do the weird sounds. Jeff Braun, start us up. What's new? Uh, Rowan Atkinson strikes again in Johnny English Strikes Again. The country is in a state of chaos. They've hacked us again, Prime Minister. Tell me the agent you've got is capable of saving us. Oh, for God's sake, English. You are now in the capable hands of Her Majesty's Secret Service. Till we meet again. Johnny English strikes again. It's a James Bond spoof series in which Rowan Atkinson does a bunch of Mr. Bean type things, so why not just make more Mr. Beans? Mm, did I have a teddy in there? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That was, actually. That. I like that. You could be a voice of a Muppet or something with that. What's next? Uh, Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet play father and son in a movie called Beautiful Boy. Okay, so how you doing? I'm doing great, you know, just, um, um, just doing what needs to be done and... What does that mean? I'm sorry, Dad. Um, why don't we just have lunch and talk? 
We can do that, right? Mm. Please. It looks pretty heavy. He uh, tries to help his drug-addicted son. It's one of two dramas this fall featuring what appears to be Steve Carell swinging hard for an Oscar. So yeah, we'll he's see. he's really trying. But yeah. this movie's not getting... It's getting decent reviews. 67%, really? I think, last time I checked. But that doesn't sound like something that's going to score him an Oscar. No. I didn't even recognize in some of the trailers. Like I had to stop and be like, that's the guy from The Office? Because he just... The whole sound of it was so very different. Yeah, he's... He not really a lot of... That's what she said in no. this one. I don't think. <laughs> There's not. There's sure not. Here's one you're really excited about, right, Jeff? Robert Redford's last movie. He's not dead. He's just retiring. Uh, he's going out with a bang in The Old Man and the Gun, in which he plays an old bank robber. Uh, excuse me. I'd like to open up an account. Well, great. What type of account do you have in mind? This kind. You said he was armed. He had a gun. You saw it. Well, he was also sort of a gentleman. He was very polite. He seemed like a nice enough fella. Look at that. Is he smiling? He also falls in love with Sissy Spacek because it's never too late to fall in love. Looks like a really good one. Uh, both Redford and Spacek, of course, always worth watching. Yeah, that one's getting amazing reviews across the board. Uh, Robert Redford, He is there anything he's ever been bad in? I wouldn't think so. There's yeah. there's a movie called Lions for Lambs that he made, which that's not... That's yeah, not, that not that great, great a movie, no. but it's more like a stage play. But I just had to look this he's up. He's still good he's, in it, though. He's 82, <laughs> yeah. playing a bank robber, like just bad to the bone, you know no, what I mean? I love him. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. So that is a surefire winner this weekend. Here's one that is looks like a surefire loser. It stars Gerard Butler. Yes. You're, you're, oh, come on. Yeah. You, Why, you don't like him, though. He's gross. But, I, wait, I, I, I never liked the him. wrong person. I thought you liked him in Geostorm. As a joke, oh. not, not as legit. <laughs> oh, no, I like Gerard Butler. Yeah. I had to look that up to be sure. Well, his new movie is called Hunter Killer. <laughs> it's a coup. What if we could free President Zakari? We rescue the Russian president. We're going in with four of our boys. We're not training simulations for this one. If we don't pull this off, it's going to be World War Three. Okay, so while we're all mocking the name Hunter Killer, <laughs> it's actually a real thing. It's a class of submarine that is designed specifically to attack and sink other okay, subs. Okay, okay. This is with the, was the Australian or the Scottish Army? Like, what's his accent again? Uh, well, oh, he's a U.S. Navy SEAL. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's based on the book Firing Point, written by retired naval officer George Wallace. And the production of the film was fully supported by the U.S. Navy. And in this story, Butler's captain discovers a Russian coup, which could screw things up all over the world. And now the Navy SEALs are going to go try to rescue the Russian president, getting more bad reviews than good. I think last time I checked it was at 29%. So there it's you go. that name. It's all, it's all in that name. People couldn't take it seriously from start to finish. The Hunter Killer. What movie are you going to go see? Hunter Killer? Or is it Killer Hunter? Uh, what about just Killer Killer? Yeah. Hunter Hunter. Hunter, Hunter Searcher. <laughs> they the same sort of thing? Anyway, uh, yeah, good timing on the storyline. So Jonah Hill, Jeff, uh, who has been, a, I, I always think of super bad, but I mean, he's been in countless things. 21 Jump Street. 22 Jump Street. Moneyball. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. There's a, he's got serious acting chops to him. So well, he now it. he's re- adding writing and directing. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he was already done a lot of writing stuff, but now he's a director in a movie called Mid-90s, set in 1990s Los Angeles. It's about a 13-year-old kid who has a turbulent home life. He goes to hang out with a new group of friends he meets at the skate shop, and it plunges him into a world of fun and danger. This is awesome. I've never been in a car without someone's mom or dad before. You're so cute. Then we get the age before guys become b- 
So I watched part of the trailer. It's uh, very obscene, yeah. which I guess I shouldn't be surprised from coming with, from Jonah Hill. But it also looks really down to earth and real. Just about a 13-year-old trying to find his way. And he's not in it at all? No, no I just, don't think so. No. He's behind the, 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 behind the camera. Uh, not one real actor. These are all these all are skater all skate, kids. Skater yeah, kids. Went to yeah. skate oh, wow. parks to, to do the additions and stuff. Yeah, so that one looks really good. This one looks nuts. It's a documentary <laughs> about a free solo climber who scales the three thousand foot El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without a rope. El Cap is the most impressive wall on earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. It's the center of the rock climbing universe. Free Solo, again, is the name of that Whoa. film. Getting excellent reviews, no 98%. Rope. I, couldn't, I don't even think I could watch it. Yeah. But you know, my hand, look, hands are just, sweating yeah, just, just thinking, thinking about, about it. it. You have to look this up. This is, it's just like going up a, like a straight-faced wall. Yeah. That's the best I can describe it, it. Well, that's what it is. He describes it as the most impressive sure wall. wall in the rock climbing yep, world. It yep. looked, this would be, I think it'd be great to see in a big screen and all the reviews are talking about the the achievement of humanity and what a what a marvelous thing this guy's done and it'll, it's inspiring and all that stuff. So that looks like fun from National Geographic. Still two more films. I'll just quickly mention them. Kira Knightley's in a movie called Colette, biographical film about a French novelist, beginning of the 20th century. She starts ghostwriting for her husband rather successfully so then she has to fight for her own recognition. That's getting good reviews. And then finally, Bel Canto, which is based on a best-selling novel. Love story that follows a famous soprano, played by Julianne Moore, who travels to a military dictatorship in South America to give a private concert at this party for a wealthy Japanese industrialist, played by Ken Watanabe. Jeff, did I say that guy's name right? Yeah, I you did. Wrong. Yeah. Okay, good. That one's getting okay reviews. So tons of choice this weekend, but Halloween, Halloween is going to win the box office. It's safe to say. Unless Johnny English strikes again. What about Hunter Killer? <laughs> no. uh, Hunter Killer, no. But you're going to go see A Star is Born, right? I'm going to try to this weekend. That's the plan. If I can squeeze that in and not fall asleep or cry uncontrollably. Why, am I gonna... why, how does fall asleep fit Because I'll be tired. I'm always tired. Oh. Don't go to Grand Park then. Don't yeah, go, I know. Go, those go those bad recliners. boy recliners are delightful. Oh, Maybe I'll just go best. for that. And if I do fall asleep... I fell asleep during Mission Impossible. I fell asleep during Mission Impossible Fallout. I don't know how I did that. But, With all uh, the like yep. explosions. In the middle of an action oh. scene, I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Couch Potatoes, you can subscribe to the podcast, Google Play or iTunes. You can listen to our show on the radio, Saturdays at noon, Sundays at 6. I put a link to the subscription for the podcast on the Instagram story, along with trailers for all eight of those films. Follow us on Instagram, and you can watch all of them in one spot. The nationally syndicated Couch Potatoes. That's right. Seven markets now, Jeff? We're on Instagram? Yeah, seven markets. <laughs> CJOB is on Instagram. Oh, Follow the 680 CJOB oh, man, that was Instagram. Good. I should put us on Instagram, hey? <laughs> Today, October 26th, is Take Your MLA to Work Day. That's right. It's part of October is Disability Employment Awareness Month in Manitoba. And uh, Ernie, great to see you. Thanks for uh, doing this, coming in and visiting us. For those that don't know, what is Take Your MLA to Work Day? Is it as obvious as it sounds? It pretty much is, yeah. It's a, it's an awareness campaign that the Manitoba Supported Employment Network put together that uh, we wanted to bring awareness to the fact that the, the clients that we support, people with disabilities, primarily people with intellectual disabilities, are being very successful in the workplace and that, uh, 
you know, the agencies that provide the support to help them be able to do that. Uh, you know, we don't, we fly under the radar most of the time and we wanted to make sure that the people that were in power and people that saw the work that was being done and saw that the capacity that our clients have to be successful in their place of employment. And, and we tried to do it by stats. Stats, you know, are, you know, they can be very impressive and can be all that, but, but they don't really move people. So it's seeing those individual stories going out and seeing actual people in their workplace and seeing what an impact they have on their workplace uh, was the venue that we kind of took. And it's, it's really taken off the, the MLAs, seem to really enjoy it. They've they've really grasped onto this. They they like this event and they we have now MLAs contacting us when we when we don't uh, get in touch with them soon enough they have MLAs contacting us saying, Hey, you know, where is where is our visit? So, so Ernie, you're the executive director of Premier Personnel. Yeah. So what's the Premier's connection to this day and this month? So Premier Personnel is a supported employment agency and uh, we are part of the Manitoba Support Employment Network. There's a number of agencies throughout the province of Manitoba that are all participating in this. Uh, it's a fairly large event. Uh, last year, we had 38 MLAs out across the province. But uh, our particular interest uh, for Premier Personnel is uh, we have, we're hosting five of those visits. And, uh, and yeah, we support a number of people throughout the city of Winnipeg and in different places of employment. Um, and, yeah, so we have a vested interest in making sure that people are aware of what we do and and a vested interest in trying to bring awareness, not just to the MLAs, but also to the employers that they can see, you know, how successful people can be in when they're hired and being able to given an opportunity to be successful in a place of employment. So, Well, you mentioned statistics and because we can't walk in anyone's shoes uh, in this six or seven minutes we've got with you, why don't you cite some of those statistics? Because they are very impressive, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so some of the things that uh, I would like people to know that uh, so people with disabilities that we support are seventy-two percent higher retention rates than among people that don't have a disability. So, as an example, the person I'm going straight from this uh, interview to a place of employment where that person has been working there in their kitchen for 16 years. Wow. And that's, you know, that's a rarity when you talk about those kinds of positions, usually people come and go and this is at a restaurant or at a restaurant. Yeah. And so it's uh, that's, that's one of the things that employers start to grasp. We know, Hey, you know, if I hire these, if I hire this person, you know, it's, I'm going to have them for way more than the usual person that I hire. Like about 18 months. yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and there's also, uh, oftentimes employers have fears about, uh, you know, hiring people with disabilities, oh, they're going to have too many sick days or things like that. And that's statistically been proven completely false. 86% of employees who have a disability have average to above average attendance records. They, they rarely miss work. Um, and 78% of Canadians are more likely to buy a product or service from a business that hires people with a disability. There is there's value to the business when they can show to the community around them that they're they're involved with this. So, so has anything uh, come out of this with the MLAs? Like, have they been able to take any action? You know, they have definitely taken an interest, and and so Manitoba Supported Employment Network has definitely gain cachet with the, with the MLAs. They, we, we were being involved a lot more in their discussions around their strategies around hiring and working with people with disabilities. Um, we've been involved with consulting with them around that. They've been considering moving towards an employment first model where, you know, for everybody that's in the province of Manitoba, work should be considered the first and best option. And that includes people with 
disabilities and significant disabilities. So we've been able to have a lot of discussions with them to try and help direct that. Um, during their, the MLAs have, some of the MLAs have stood up during their member speeches and actually talked about their visits with the Take Your MLA to Work because the visits are pretty impactful. Like you're meeting some pretty interesting people and you can see the the love they have for their jobs. And, you know, it, it is making a difference in terms of, you know, resonating with them, you know, so, so I definitely see the discussions moving towards, you know, oh, hey, that's, that's really neat. You know, we got to do more of this, you know, how far that's gone in terms of dollars and cents, that's still uh, up, up for up in the air, but uh, it's still, uh, you know, they're, they're working that way. So they're sorry, Greg, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. uh, Do the MLAs, actually work when you bring them to work? Sometimes, yeah. yeah uh, the visits are all kind of different, but usually what happens is they'll come, uh, we'll do the, do an introduction to the client that's hosting them, and the, the client will usually take them on a tour of their, their place of employment and show them what they do. And all, sometimes the, the MLAs have taken part in and helped them do their work. And, yeah, it's, there's there's been a few different visits, but there's been a few pictures of the MLAs actually pitching in and, you know, <laughs> learning from the client, you know, how to do the job. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. It's uh, They get a chance to get some hands-on stuff if they want to. So. Yeah, well, there, there are so many um, uh, small businesses as well, in particular in rural Manitoba, that are geared towards uh, employing people with intellectual uh, difficulties and challenges. And I love doing my best to support those businesses as well because they go a long way and not just supporting the economy, but uh, giving those individuals uh, just the highlight other day. I think I may have shared this with you before, but uh, we used to have a woman that used to live with my mom and my stepdad. Karen was her name. She lived with us for almost six years, and she worked at the Handcrafter in Boisevane, and she got picked up for work every day, and she was so excited when the bus pulled into the lane and she would get picked up. It, 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 it She would light up every single day. It was incredible to see. Yeah, well, we have a story. One of our clients... Uh She's been working at Holiday Inn South for many years, and uh, the boss had decided to give her Christmas off because she'd work Christmas Day pretty much the whole time she'd been there. And he told her, yeah, you can have the day off. You know, he was thinking he was doing her a favor, and she had kind of come back, you know, very sad. And he was like, what's wrong? And she says, well, I don't really have a lot of family or whatever. You know, this is my family, you know, and I'd rather be at work with my family than – so he – Told her, well, yeah, come put in and work. Yeah, yeah, put her back on the schedule. So that was, you know, just things like that. Like, it really is. A place of employment is an impactful place, especially for people that are kind of on the edges you know, of, of society. So it, we, it really is the best way to include people. So. All right. Well, Ernie Thiessen, thank you so much uh, once again, for, first of all, for doing what it is you do and for continuing to champion this Take Your MLA to Work Day. And it's October Disability Employment Awareness Month and Premier Personnel as part of the Manitoba Supported Employment Network. Ernie is the Executive Director of Premier Personnel. And there is looking about, looks like three dozen MLAs will be participating today, maybe more. Ernie, thanks for the visit. Thank you. Make it a great day, Ernie. This is great stuff. We want to talk about the Global News podcast. This is why. Yeah, and the story that uh, Nikki Reitmeyer is telling this week is really incredible. It involves um, a woman who decided she wanted to confront her rapist decades after she was... uh, 
hit with this violent crime. And it's asking the question, really, what would you do if you were a victim of crime? Would you want to confront the guy who took your parents' life or if you or, or, or if you're the victim yourself? And so it's a conversation I don't even know if you could have unless you've been there before. And it's a fascinating one. So we want to bring in Nikki Reitmeyer now. Uh, good morning, Nikki. Good morning. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that really is the question behind all of this and, and whether or not you've been a victim of a violent crime, perhaps it's been something more minor, you know, a, a bad breakup, you've been cheated on by a spouse or or you've had bad dealings with a business partner. I think a lot of people can relate to being in that scenario where you think to yourself, I would like to sit down with that person and ask them, why? Why did you do this to me? Even if you're not ready to forgive them, you want closure and you want to be able to look at them and have them explain to you, why did you do this bad thing to me? And I think that that's really the, the very common question that's at the root of what restorative justice is and why it's becoming so popular. So can you talk to us about the woman at the heart of this podcast this week and and the man she wanted to speak to, I think a lot of people would be familiar with the story. It was a really high profile case back in the 80s. Yeah, it was a very high profile case of a man who, starting in the late 70s and then through the 80s, began attacking women and children in the lower mainland of, of British Columbia. Now, his name was John Otten, but your listeners may remember him better as the paper bag rapist. And he got that name because when he would attack his victims, he would put on either theater makeup or a paper bag to disguise his appearance. We're talking about a, a heinous monster who later, once he was arrested, he was charged with 14 counts of, of sexual assault, but he later admitted to somewhere in the neighborhood of, of raping 150 women and children, the exact number still not known. And the woman that we spoke to, Nikki, was his youngest victim. She was eight years old when she was attacked by this guy back in the 80s. And we were talking about this on, on one of our radio stations here in Vancouver about restorative justice. And she actually got in, in touch with my colleague, John McComb, and said, hey, I heard you on the radio talking about restorative justice. I want to let you know my story because this is something I've recently pursued. This is who I am. My name is Nikki. I am the youngest victim of this paper bag rapist. And I want to tell you my story and get it out there because I think it would help other victims too. Something in my gut all of a sudden said to me, I have to do this. And there was almost a big panic right away. I started thinking, what if the guy dies and I, you know, and I don't get this opportunity. And it really happened very quickly. You know, there was just all a flood of emotions, especially as a 40-year-old victim of a crime that happened a long time ago. There's lots of stuff piled on top of that. And I was angry. I was angry at the system. I was angry that people didn't help me. And now I'm here and, you know, I'm working through all that. But I knew at the core of it, I needed to see the man that changed my life that day. And I had no plan. I was following my gut. My gut told me I need to go and put it back on him, take it off me and put it back on him. There were things I decided I wanted to say to him, I wanted to share with him. Uh, so going in, you know, I had somewhat of an agenda, but, you know, would I want to jump across the table and put my hands around his neck? You know, would I collapse and not be able to do it. I have major anxiety. Would I have a panic attack? There's just a million things. I'm interested to hear the answer to the question 
about whether or not she inevitably wanted or maybe did in fact reach across the table, Nikki, and uh, put them around his neck. But when you hear these stories, at least for me, I, I, I think about the opportunities and the limited opportunities, even within our own family dynamic and things that may affect us in our adult lives that happened as we were children. There's, a, I think, a hesitancy on the part of victims uh, not only to relive the trauma that they've been through, because, I mean, the first time is enough as it is, and if you've gone through a trial, that is very, very difficult uh, to relive and rehash that over and over again. But sometimes it's just about not wanting to burden the other person and that whole idea of carrying this around on their own somehow seems more appealing than burdening someone else. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see that with all victims of, of crime or, or people who have had something wrong done to them that, you know, you tend to stuff it down, you carry it around with yourself, but then we know that that builds and builds and builds. In the case of Nikki, you know, she she had mental health issues, still does have mental health issues. She was bulimic for years and years and years. It took years of therapy before she was even able to get to this point where she was able to sit down in front of Auden and say, you know, why did you do this to me? And ask him the questions that she needed to hear. And, and since she's done it, she said that it's really, really helped her get some closure. And it's interesting, there was a, an expert that we were speaking with as well who, who deals with a lot of victims who want to pursue restorative justice. And he said, you know, you'd be surprised. The main motive, it seems, for, for people who want to pursue restorative justice is because they want to be recognized by their perpetrator. And I know that sounds weird because, you know, they're not looking for a, approval and they're not necessarily looking to give their forgiveness, but they want to be recognized. You know, so often people will issue a, a not guilty plea or perpetrators won't accept responsibility. So there's something really cathartic to be able to sit down in front of this person who's done something wrong to you and have that person say, yes, I committed this crime. Yes, I did something wrong. I remember you and I'm sorry for what I did. Nikki Reitmeyer, host of the Global News Podcast, This Is Why. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us this story, teeing up this story. And we'll, of course, link the podcast to our various social media. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. But right now, Greg... Well, and I know I know that Remembrance Day means a lot to many people, but uh, for you, it's always been a little bit extra special. I've got, gleaned that from you over the years. Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, noticing that, Brett. Uh, my my stand on Remembrance Day is that without what we observe and recognize on Remembrance Day. The holidays that we hold so dear would not be possible because we wouldn't be able to celebrate them had uh, the great wars, the world, world's war one and two gone a different way. You might not even of. have a vote like we did Wednesday. It's so true. And so when November 11th comes around, I, I try to do my best to remind my kids of what we've been through, of our history and, well... The History Channel is going to do something special to make sure that we remember as well as we approach the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. Tim Cook is a historian at the Canadian War Museum and a director for Canada's Historical Society. He was the curator for the First World War Permanent Gallery at the Canadian War Museum and has curated additional temporary traveling and digital exhibitions. And he joins us now. Good morning, Tim. 
Good morning. So tell us a little bit about 100 Days to Victory. Well, uh, I'm a historian here at the War Museum, and I was very pleased to be asked to be a part of this uh, film. It's a great film, uh, multinational, and it really situates the Canadian story within the larger international one, and it focuses on the 100 Days campaign. And I think most Canadians probably haven't heard about those series of battles that end the First World War. Most people maybe know about Vimy. And I wrote a book last year called Vimy, the Battle and the Legend. And I noted in there that Vimy is important, but really it's the 100 days that are the most important. The Canadian Corps, 100,000 strong, commanded by a Canadian, Sir Arthur Currie, fighting their way forward from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August, where they shock the Germans. And they realized that maybe this war could finally end, continuing in battles at Arras at the end of August and uh, capturing Cambrai and Mons. And these are the greatest series of battles fought by the Canadians in the war. Canadian soldiers delivering victory in a, in a brutal battlefield. And that's the that's what the film is about. That's what our exhibition at the War Museum is about as well. It's called 1918 Victory. Tim, how much is this highlighting just the, the central and key role that Canadian troops played here? We do play a key role. And I think, uh, you know, we have a proud history of peacekeeping in this country, largely a story of the 20th, the second half of the 20th century. If you think of the first half, though, we fought in the South African War, the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War. That's quite astonishing. We're a country that has gone to war when we have believed in these causes. And the First World War, we, we think of as the War of the Trenches, and rightly so, and the unending slaughter and death. But there's also victory there, victory delivered by the Canadian Corps, playing a key role, punching far above our weight. Uh, in fact, playing a more important role to end the war than the American fighting forces did on the battlefield. And I think most Canadians probably don't know that story, and it's an important one to tell. Tim, you're the author of 11 books, many of them award-winning, including 2008's Shock Troops, and one of the reasons why... Shows like this, the one that is coming up on history, are so important is so that we can continue to educate ourselves. And I have to admit, I the term shock troop, I've heard it, but I don't think I've ever asked the question, what is a shock troop? So you can answer that for yeah. me. Well, that's right. Uh, generally, the elite troops um, and the Canadians were these uh, elite um, fighting force. We had delivered victory in the 1917 battles at Vimy in April of 17, at Hill 70, even at Passchendaele, that horrendous battlefield, the bog of unburied corpses. And and the Canadians each time had achieved their objectives. And then in the 100 days, the Canadians fighting again and again, and they were known as shock troops, this idea that they are thrown into the most difficult battles and that they will deliver victory. And they did that. They did it at a terrible cost, though. The problem with being shock troops is that you tend to get used more often in the harder battlefields. And the four Canadian divisions, in the end, defeat elements of 47 German divisions in the final 100 days. Now, that doesn't mean they annihilated all of them, but they broke through position after position in a single battle, like at the Battle of Arras, which is fought from the 26th of August to the 2nd of September. Canadians overrun 1,000 machine guns, 1,000. Each of those machine guns fires 500 bullets a minute, and still the Canadians found ways to fight forward tenaciously, uh, gritty victories, uh, burying their comrades along the way, but ultimately uh, winning in the end. I think one of the amazing things, anytime I watch an historical film or speak to people like yourself, Tim, and historians who have so much insight into 
the battles of World War One. What I can't get wrap my head around, and I think many Canadians might be the same, is just how awful that might have been. You talked about the rounds being fired. About this is one of the bloodiest battles of our time, and it's still. I can't. Mm-hmm. I still can't believe that this is how we went in. That we sent men over here to do it like that, and that which which maybe is yeah. why it's so important that we revisit this so often. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I have a new book out called The Secret History of Soldiers and. What I wanted to know there is how did they keep, how did they survive? How did they keep going? How did they endure the horrors and the and the strain of combat? And of course, they rely on each other. They fight for the man beside them. They come together in in times that we in experiences we could scarcely understand today. And they create their own culture. It's a culture of song, and they have theater behind the lines, and newspapers, and they're deeply superstitious and. All of this comes together to help to toughen them up, to prepare them for the onslaught. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they dealt with conditions that we can barely, I think, imagine today. And still, they kept going. And, and in the end, um, they they won. And, and 550,000 of those Canadians came home. They became veterans. They built up this country. and they uh, and, and Canada was forever changed by this war. 100 Days to Victory, it premieres Sunday, November 11th at 8 o'clock our time on History Canada. And I believe you can see it again at uh, 10 o'clock Pacific. So I guess that would be 8 o'clock Central Time on Remembrance Day. Tim Cook is our guest. He was the curator for the First World War Permanent Gallery at the Canadian War Museum. And Tim, so many people will talk about their experiences of traveling to Normandy, to France, to Belgium, to see these battlegrounds. Um, if you can't make that journey, is visiting the Canadian War Museum, I don't want to say the next best thing, but the best, the next uh, most educational thing? I think it's a powerful experience, and we opened up this exhibition last night, 1918 to uh, Victory, and people were crying. You know, they're crying, seeing the films, uh, encountering these powerful stories of service and sacrifice, of of the incredible um, self-sacrifice often of soldiers. We have five Victoria Crosses on display. We tell the personal stories of of grief and loss and and how these guys kept fighting. And I think it's a very powerful experience. Going to the Western Front, where I have gone many times and led battlefield tours, is a different experience. And to be there, to walk amongst those cemeteries, to see those young boys and some of the middle-aged guys as well, is a very powerful experience. It weighs upon you. And to visit the Menin Gate, to stand on Vimy Ridge, to um, to be at Dieppe or Juno Beach, that is a very powerful experience and one that I, I wish personally that every Canadian had a chance to do at some point in their life. Do you at all think or, or fear that remembrance is fading in this country? Well, it goes through cycles of importance to Canadians, and I've studied this, and it was crucially important in the 20s and 30s after the First World War and after the Second World War. But by the 60s and 70s and 80s, we were a country that was changing. We were losing our connection to the war. Veterans were dying, and and Remembrance Day was in danger of disappearing. And then surprisingly, around 1995, it began to surge again, and that was the 50th anniversary of the Second World War. You may remember the tens of thousands of veterans who went back to Normandy, went back to to Holland to be greeted by the Dutch as liberators. 
And I think over the last 20 years, we've seen an upsurge of interest at the local level, at all of those monuments across our country, at the national level as well. And so I'm not sure what the future will hold, except to say that we seem to have rediscovered this part of our history and that it still seems to matter to Canadians. And that is perhaps incredible to think 100 years ago, this war where no one is left alive, and 75 years ago with the Second World War and most of our veterans passing away now, we still seem to care. And so uh, I think I will be optimistic to say that I think it will still matter to us, but one can never be certain about these things. Tim, you might be fascinated to know that while we've been speaking, we received a text message from one of our listeners with an incredible photograph and this attached. Sir Arthur Curry was my great-grandfather. Oh, my goodness. There you go. Well, he, he there's a biography of him that is entitled, it was written in 1950, called A Great Canadian. And, in fact, he was a great Canadian. He's a... I sometimes say if he was British or American, we would all know him like Patton and Montgomery. He would he would have everything named after him, and uh, instead he's largely forgotten, I think, and I think that's a shame, and that's uh, that's one of the dangers that happens in this country. If we don't tell our stories, don't expect the British or the Americans to tell them, and it's uh, part of our job as Canadians to know our past, and uh, it helps situate us in the, in the present and perhaps gives us a way to look into the future. In saying that, one of the British newspapers I read <laughs> in reviewing this talked about how um, it, it it points to the fact that Canadians are responsible for the victory here and seem to take offense that it was, you know, suggesting that there wasn't a British role played here. But it might be more just an education on that side. Maybe they, they aren't aware in the other in England about what Canada did. Yeah, I think that's certainly a part of it. Um, I, I don't think the British at all like know what we did during the war. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have to tell our stories this this film production is, is a, a multi-national production, and um, I'll leave it for people to decide and to look at the film um, and to see, I think, at the very least, they will learn something quite new about the First World War, quite new about the, the role of the Canadian Corps and, and how the Canadians uh, contributed to this key victory. Tim Cook is our guest. He is one of the contributors to a special that will debut on Sunday, November 11th on History Canada at 8 o'clock Winnipeg time. Two episodes. It's called 100 Days to Victory. Tim is a historian at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa and a director for Canada's History Society. Tim, thank you so much for the time this morning. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.